Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your holy word this morning, we pray that you safeguard our hearts, establish them in truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're coming to the end of our time in Genesis. We haven't been in the entire book. We picked up really when Jacob enters fatherhood and begins raising his household in the Lord. Or actually, at first, he wasn't raising his household in the Lord. And as we approach now the final three chapters of Genesis, this is actually a good time before we look at what's to be at the end of Genesis to to remember the beginning. Because the book of Genesis actually means beginnings, origins. It's a book of beginnings. And how did the book of Genesis begin? What was in its first three chapters? In its first three chapters was a God who in his word, in the power of his word, spoke life into the world. And in that powerful word, the life that was created, the fullness of life that was created, was a paradise. It was a paradise. We often think of the Garden of Eden, and we think Eden is a proper name. No, what Eden means is paradise. God created a paradise through the power of his word. And then yet we know what happens at chapter 3. The man and the woman created in his image stopped listening to the word of the one in whose image they were created and started becoming their own God, started following their own patterns, and death followed them. And now we come to the end of the book of Genesis, and in the last three chapters, what it will talk about is death. We will have the death of Israel. We will have the death of Joseph. And it will force us to look at death, something that normally we are very uncomfortable of looking at, and to ask ourselves, What does it mean to die well? What does it look like to die well? And the reality is, and what we will see unfold in these chapters, is to die well is to die with faith in the assurances and the promises that God has made. And so that's how we are going to look at this. And so basically, in one sense, through faith, The end of Genesis is going to see a way for new life to emerge, a life after even death, a hope beyond death itself. And so we find ourselves starting in the verse we closed on last week. The family of Israel continues to be blessed beyond all others upon the face of the earth. In the land of Goshen, they have gained possessions and the family has been multiplying beyond all those who surround them. When they're compared to the Egyptians and the Canaanites, you say, this demographic, this people group, they are doing better in how they are going about life than any other group. And the father Israel, he lives in Goshen for a second set of 17 years with Joseph. If you remember, Joseph was kidnapped, taken into slavery by the brothers at the age of 17. And then there was a 20-year gap, and now he gets a second set of 17 years to enjoy the presence 
of Joseph. Joseph now 54 years old, and actually Manasseh and Ephraim, the two sons of this text at this point, are roughly 20 years old. And yet death, as we said, is now close at hand for Israel. He is the last of the three great patriarchs. And as Israel is dying, Joseph comes to his side. And we might remember that in Genesis 46, before Jacob entered into the land of Israel, God had promised Jacob, but now called to Israel, that Joseph would be there to close his eyelids in death. And that time is soon approaching where God will honor yet another promise to Israel and allow him once more to be in the midst of his favored son. And Israel humbly asks his son the following, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Now, there are two things I have to say about the request of Israel here. The first is a little more uncomfortable to make because the Bible at, at times has what some people call cultural mores that we don't, we find a little weird. And so what's going on with the thigh here? Well, one commentary, it was actually a notable commentary, suggests this view. If you want to believe the less comfortable view, believe this uncomfortable view, believe this one. It suggests that uh, what Jacob was asking was for Joseph to touch the place in his hip where God had kind of, in wrestling with him, had wounded him so that he could remember that moment. So that's a good thing to want to believe. Maybe you think it's true. It's not really true. The book of Genesis is a book where, think of the great even sacrament instituted in Genesis. You don't go down to the local Grandview Hospital, but you have your dad give you the sign and seal of the Mark of the Covenant. It's covered up most of your life, but you have your dad perform basically surgery on an intimate area and... Yet there's something in that illustration that God says, even in the areas that, that the world does not see, that are private. I still want to have authority there and show and display in one sense your faithfulness to me. So what Joseph is holding is in essence the reality of the seed, the reality of the line which is to come. If you think again, even of the great individuals of Genesis, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, there are always always these moments where the seed or, or the line of God is being attacked by evil, being attacked by even Satan himself. And in one sense, there's an imagery here, but also, in under, appreciating this image, it will come into play with Joseph's request. So the Hebrew here is left intentionally vague for good reason. Enough with the uncomfortable stuff. The second and far more important point 
of what's going on here in this dialogue, this interplay between Israel and Joseph is Jacob is now, now Israel is saying something remarkable with great humility. Moses has already told us that the last 17 years have been excellent. This place has been an oasis of oasis. Remember, this was the best of land of Egypt. This was the ultimate rancher farmland. I would dare say since Genesis 3.15, up until this moment, this oasis in Goshen, this is the very best place the covenant people ever have had to live. This is the best of the best that the world has to offer thus far for the covenant family of God. And yet, Jacob comes to his son, his favorite son, and says, but this isn't the place I was promised. This isn't the place when God named me, and Luz, so you know, is actually another name for Bethel. When God came to me at Bethel, this wasn't the place he promised to redeem. In one sense, think of where, again, Jacob is. He's in Egypt. This is the society that knows burials better than anybody else. If Jacob had said, essentially, I want a massive sarcophagus, the power of Joseph in this moment, he could have given his father a shrine that would put the Smith tombstone in the back here to shame. He could have just asked, and Joseph would have given. In an illustration, in an American sense, it's almost like, in one sense, you have the opportunity to be buried in the National Mall. You know, maybe like under the, uh, the Lincoln Memorial, you can have your burial site. And instead, you decide to be buried by the waste treatment facility in Niceville, inner city Philadelphia, which if you don't know Niceville, it is the leading crime area of inner city Philly. So Niceville isn't so nice. Because think, the last time Jacob was in Canaan, it was a place of famine. It was a place of death. It was a place of barren wilderness. It had nothing to offer. And now he's in the best of what the world has to offer. And he says, I don't care about the best what the world has to offer. I believe in the promises of God. And then trusting the promises of God, there's a day where he is going to make that a better land. And I want to be buried there. I want, to, I want the very people who enjoy the fruits of that kingdom to be stomping in one sense on top of me in celebration for that greater day forward. And as the cover of your bulletin points out in the book of Hebrews, it looks to this moment as just this excellent moment of great faith in the life of Jacob. He knows the God who can give life to any place, and the God who has given him assurances and promises. Jacob knew the God of Genesis 1 through 3, and all he needs to do is speak, and life follows. Paradise and joy follow from his words. His hope was that his family, that they would have a greater exodus to come from this land of Egypt into a greater kingdom to come. And while we're talking about cemeteries and burials, seeing we have the good fortune of having one on this property, a lot of people visit gravestones here. Just had somebody, and I think I've mentioned it at the pulpit here before, but we just had somebody visit from Germany a few months ago, wanting to see 
one of their ans- one of their ancestors who had come to the new world buried here in the oldest section. And we found this. And we have people that take comfort knowing that while death awaits them, they're, while they're not going to be buried in the National Mall, someday their bodies will be laid beside loved ones already there. However, and this is a difficult truth I'm about to share, but it's still truth. A lot of people take comfort in knowing where they will be buried. And a lot of people take comfort that one day they might be buried there. And a lot of people hope that they might die well when that hour comes. And yet the pathetic thing is, how are you going to faithfully die with courage if your life is one and was one that grossly ignored the one who has power to make places of death into places of life through the power of his word. I mean, someone who goes uncomfortably into death while forsaking God, they are nothing more than a fool. And someone hoping to die well and die faithfully, not desiring to trouble their day by being faithful to the God whom has displayed his power through the Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord, in life and in death, without embracing him, is even a bigger fool. And I will say, one of the hardest parts of my job is how many times people will knock on the door of this church, come to this church, wanting to see a particular stone where the relative of theirs who used to be faithfully a member of this congregation, they might even tell me stories of their faithfulness. They come to see their stone, this where it now rests, and they don't care to hear for a second about the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus. They don't care to care about the one whom this place was set aside to proclaim and to herald and to worship. Where the why the forebearers of this property brought this property to, in order to exalt Jesus Christ, they don't care a lick, and they don't want to hear it from me. And it's sad, and it's tragic, and it's nothing like the death of Jacob. Jacob trusts in the word of God. He knows the Lord, the giver of life. And so he's able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and not fear evil. It's such a sad thing to care about a carved rock, but not to care about the Lord, who is the rock of ages. And so Joseph vows, I will bury you in Canaan. And then he made Israel vow a second time, the promise twice. Then a little while later, Joseph is told his father is growing increasingly ill, and he brings his sons this time, who are around 20 again, he brings them to be blessed, Manasseh, the older one, Ephraim, the younger one. And there is so much here. But first off, we need to remember why Joseph named his two sons what he did. Do you remember why? The answer is in Genesis chapter 41, verses 51 through 52. The firstborn was Manasseh. And what did Manasseh mean? It basically meant God made me forget about all the hardship I had back when I was in my father's house. Talk about an uncomfortable reunion. Maybe that's why Joseph doesn't share the words that Joseph and his father first exchange in his narrative, in his account. But, you know, here he is being introduced to his grandchildren. Here's my eldest son. What's your eldest son's name? 
it's that God's made me forget about all the troubles I had in your household. And I could just imagine Jacob then asking with bated breath, what's then the second child's name? What did Ephraim mean? Basically, that God made Joseph fruitful in Egypt, even though he was afflicted in his coming here. And so in one sense, and to be clear, I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's just a little bit tongue-in-cheek. The names were, God helped me forget about my former family, and God made it better in Egypt anyways. Not to mention these two children are half Egyptian. In a land that is the land that it seems that through the promises given to Abraham is likely to enslave them and will be the land that enslaves them. And to make matters worse, do you remember what Joseph's father-in-law was again? He was essentially the high priest to the pagan Egyptian god. And Egypt, as we've already seen, even with Joseph, even with him being the second most powerful people, there's such a segregated culture. They don't even eat with Joseph. He's already lived there 17 years. He would have definitely experienced the rejection of Egypt. So these children carry the name of a time where Joseph seemed to have potentially moved on, forsaken, possibly even forsaken the covenant family. And they carried in part the bloodlines that were soon to be even more hostile to put into bondage the family of Israel. And so this isn't a layup kind of request. Joseph is saying, please, dad, before you die, receive my two children into the covenant family. Recognize them as having a connection to the family of Israel. And we have to think, because this took 17 years to happen, this might have been the greatest fear after the reunion of Joseph before his father. And yet any faithful parent wants nothing more than their children to be counted and received among the faithful covenant community. And so I believe there are elements of that here. And so knowing what Joseph was really asking Jacob, he begins to speak in verse 3, and he says, basically, you remember how God blessed me in Bethel? Because God blessed me in Bethel, I now can bless your children. Your children are like my children. And actually, he carries on. He's, he's basically, in one sense, ta- describing. He carries on and he basically says, and even though they don't deserve it, I was blessed by God when I didn't deserve it. And so I too can bless others when they don't deserve it. I can extend the blessings of grace and mercy to others. And then he takes it one step further in verse 5 and declares of Ephraim and Manasseh, they are mine. I have adopted them. I see them as I do the rest of my own children. I give them an inheritance just as I will give Reuben and Simeon an inheritance. And all their households will be seen as fellow members of the family of Israel. So as Genesis closes, the namesake of Israel declares, because God blessed me when I didn't deserve it, I also want that for your children, Joseph. I want that so much for them, not as a, even as a grandfather to a grandson, but I will look upon them as a father to a son with all the rights that entails, even the rights to my inheritance. And if you haven't realized it, Christian, that's pretty close to how our salvation works as well. 
When the favored son of the father brings children who do not deserve it in their deeds, in their very names, in their very origins, to have full acceptance into his family. And yet the father can look at us and say, son, because I love you, I love those whom you bring to me. And so I bless them and I forgive them. And I see no more of what should keep them from having an inheritance with me. I give it freely to them. And I embrace them being a part of my family because I so love you, my favorite son. That's how God sees you. When you grab a hold of that truth, you no longer have to worry about the grave. And rather you look forward to that day in which you too will have an inheritance given and a greater kingdom to come, even when your eyelids go dim. And then Jacob continues in his reason for adopting these children of his own, and he remembers back to Rachel, the woman in whom he loved. And he remembers how her life was cut short, and he actually shares this beautiful reality with Joseph. He says, I look at these two boys, and I see them as God basically giving me more children from my lost wife. I see them as an inheritance. And for that, I am thankful. He praises God in this. He doesn't, he's not a begrudging giver. And so he has great love here. And he engrafts these two sons in here. One quick technical reality, just to mention, is remember Reuben was the oldest, but in First Chronicles chapter 5, I believe verse 1, it will tell us that Reuben because of his infidelity, um, did not receive the double blessing that Joseph is about to receive. Remember, Joseph is the eldest of Rachel, however. And so in verse 8, the ceremony, receiving them into adoption begins almost like a wedding ceremony. Israel asks, who are these? He knows who they are. It's sort of like, who, to, who hands over, who presents this woman? That's the kind of idea going on here. And Joseph answers that these sons here, uh, these are his sons here to be blessed. And Joseph brings the children. Manasseh, he brings to Jacob's right, Israel's right, Ephraim to his left. And then Israel makes a sweet remark, remembering how God's been so good to him, not only just allowing him to see Joseph once again, but also these sons of his. And so what unfolds here is almost easier to illustrate. Joseph knows the eldest son is supposed to get the blessing, so he makes sure that Manasseh is to the right. Ephraim, which we read about in our reading, the land of Ephraim, but Ephraim the son is to the left. He's the younger son. And then Joseph bows down. His head hits the floor before Jacob. And Jacob does this. He crosses his hands. And his right hand is now on Ephraim. And his left hand is on Manasseh. And Joseph has no idea this is going on. And he pronounces the better blessing upon Ephraim, the younger son, the second son. And he pronounces the other blessing, the lesser blessing on Manasseh, the elder son. I'm going to get into what 
Jacob says about the blessing in a moment. That's where I want to close. But before that, let's see. I want to talk a little bit about Joseph's response. It's two verses dedicated to Joseph's response. After Jacob pronounces the blessing, Joseph sees what has gone on through the crossed hands. And he's angry. He's upset. And he basically says, Father, this isn't the way it's so supposed to be. The second son isn't the son who's supposed to get the blessing. It's supposed to be the first son who's the favored son. The first son who gets priority. Maybe he thought he was just having like a Jewish father moment, just kind of not thinking. But no, and Jacob makes clear, he goes, I know what I was doing. And I know even maybe it seems like in the narrative, it might be hard for you to understand. But this son has the greater blessing. The second son has the greater blessing. The second son has the greater favor. You're going to have to trust me on this. This basically comes from God. I know, my son, I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. I know you're upset at the idea. But this is how the blessing will be. I did not make a mistake. It's the second son in whom I will receive into the family of Israel with a greater portion. So the blessing stood, even against the protest of Joseph and Israel out of an outflowing of love, even after giving Joseph a double portion, two parts of land in the promised land to come. And it's still going to be 12 pieces of land. Remember that the tribe of Levi will not be given land because the God of Israel will be their inheritance. But Israel still gives Joseph a promise that he too has a portion of land. He gives him a small portion that Jacob had gotten through the sword. Now, there's a little debate on when this came. I personally believe that it was from that Levi and Simeon event. But basically, he gives Joseph a piece of land as well. But now let me round back to the words of the blessing, and I think we'll close on these. Let me read first the blessing of Israel. He speaks before his death. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who had been my shepherd all my life, long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, Maybe to appreciate, more fully appreciate the words of Jacob as the words of Genesis come to a close. Let me read something written a thousand years later after Jacob dies. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, shepherd, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Of course, we know those words. Those are the words of maybe the most popular text to read as we pass on 
from this life into the next. My brother always, he often reads that as a hospital chaplain. He'll often call me and tell me sometimes. He has a few every year where literally on the last word, people breathe out their last and go to God. And he never fails to just be amazed and he wants to share in that moment. But please appreciate that here at the end of Genesis, a thousand years before that was ever written, Jacob's blessing identified God as his shepherd. Jacob realized that this angelic vision that he kept having encounters with of God, whom he was blessed to witness in his life, had protected him from evil, even in the presence of his enemies. We remember Jacob's already talked about how his life was filled with evil. So the idea here is that evil never overwhelmed him because of the power of God. And Jacob knew that God would honor his promises and establish his house forever. So do you realize what that means? That means the truths of Psalm 23 are timeless truths on the lips of everyone who's preparing to die well in the Lord. Not just that King David understood those words, but looking here at the end of Genesis, those words are in the lips of the faithful that the Lord prepares. A life seasoned with hardship and sorrow and pain and difficulty like that of Jacob, can still be a life that trusts in the great shepherd who has established great promises. Even as our eyelids have grown dim and death draws near, evil won't prevail. God will honor his promises. What looked bleak, God would restore. And as the book of Genesis begins to close in these final three chapters that reflect on death itself in a book that opened up with life, here we have words of life uttered from Jacob, and it seems even though it seems like he will go down into death without a great victory. A greater day is coming, and Jacob realizes that he has seized upon these promises by faith through God. And even going as far as to hand out to his children, by even children by adoption, the blessing of a place that will be prepared for their descendants and for them, their people that will follow them. And that greater day that Jacob longed for has now come in that tomb that our Lord borrowed for three days. And if you believe upon Jesus Christ, if you believe upon him for salvation, rest in him alone, you receive in faith that second Adam, that second son, who is willing to adopt you by grace. You need not worry. You need not fear, for your shepherd has always already then come in human flesh. And there is a day soon approaching where the favored son will one day bring you before his heavenly father. And he will say to his father, Father, receive them. Receive these children by name. And the father will, through his love for the son, be able to declare through his actions of of acceptance, favored son, because I love you, I love those whom you bring to me. And I so bless them and I so forgive them that I see no more what should keep them from being a part of my family. God offers that us that assurance today in Christ Jesus. We, our own Manassas, our own Ephraims, bearing guilt and shame, not being perfect before the eyes of the Father, have a favored son who brings us there before him. And he sees us without flaw. And he welcomes us into his family through the goodness of his favored son, 
Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a shepherd because we are like sheep that continually go astray. And yet through your son, through the power of the spirit, you have called to us through the word of life and thus help change our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Help us, Lord, to remember the grace and mercy that you first poured out upon us and share that good news with others. And now, Lord, we can take a moment to confess our sins, confess those moments where we still fail in our old man to be children of the Father. Let us take now time to confess our sins before the Lord. Amen.